Welcome back to the Dear Katie Survivor Stories podcast. This is Katie Kessner, your host. After being sexually assaulted at age 18 in college, I appeared on the cover of Time Magazine and the subject of an HBO movie. As you know, I have dedicated my life and my story to raising awareness and supporting survivors. So what exactly comes to any of our minds when we think about elite private boarding schools? For me, I think of expensive tuitions, lots of sports, very high academic standards. But our guest today, Lily, shares her experience at her boarding school, and it's quite different. She describes a world of older boys preying on younger students for sexual favors and doing so with impunity. Peer pressure is always bad enough for any of us as teenagers, and Lily talks about why remaining silent was just a way to survive for her. She talks about what it took to break that silence. So let's listen in to Lily's journey. Welcome to another episode of the Dear Katie podcast. My name is Katie Kastner, and I am today joined by Sandra Miles. Dr. Miles is an incredible co-host. Sandra, would you kindly introduce yourself and share your vision for our survivors and supporters? Yes, uh, I'm Sandra Miles, and I have worked in higher education for a number of years in a variety of capacities, including vice president for student affairs, dean of students, and as a deputy Title IX coordinator. So I have had the privilege of supporting victims and survivors across many college campuses um, throughout my career. And I also want to share um, somewhat of a trigger warning. Sometimes the discussions in our podcast can be difficult to hear, especially for survivors of trauma. We encourage all of you to take care for your safety and well-being. Reach out for emotional support from family or friends, a counselor if you have one, or a hotline. Additional resources may be found on the Take Back the Night Foundation website. We'll share that address with you at the end of the podcast. Thanks so much, Sandra, and welcome, Lily. So our guest um, for this episode is Lily, and Lily, I love our backstory, and I only want to preface it with one, and then you continue with your, you know, bio. So Lily and I met on an interview for her school newspaper talking about one of our prior guests, Angela. Angela was assaulted decades ago at Lily's institution before um, the uh, term gang rape was even coined. And Lily uh, supported this story and was willing to go there and shed light on Angela's story. So when Lily, you reached out to me, I gave you an interview, but I think what was magical was you also must have chosen this particular case, cause, storyline for your own choice because it meant something to you. So I know we'll get there later, but this is like, to me, the love and brilliance and sadness all in one fell swoop is how one story leads to another story. And all of us only need to ask one question sometimes to know that others sit in our same chair. So Lily, introduce yourself. I'm happy to have you and share a little 
uh, about where you're from. I think you might be from California. I am. Yes. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much. Um, and Sandra, you as well. I am, I am from California. I've, I've moved around quite a bit in my life. And, um, at this point, I'm a senior in college and I'm the managing editor of my university's newspaper. And I also work as a, an advocate for victims of sexual violence. I myself am a, a multiple time victim. And, and so one big thing that I have just taken with me through adulthood, young adulthood is making sure that our voices as victims are heard because we are the source of this information. And if one person just stands up and speaks, so many follow. Uh, it just it just really takes one testimony, as you pointed out. Thank you so much, Lily. And now let's like what brings you the I think all of our survivors and supporters and then I know Sandra's gonna have more questions. But could you explain, you know, you mentioned multiple experiences. What stands out as one you'd like to share with our listeners tonight? I would like to preface that my story starts out at an incredibly young age. I was first assaulted at 14. Um, I went to a New England boarding school. And as some people might know, there is a huge problem on boarding school campuses with sexual violence. We have um, two cases coming out of St. Paul's that occurred not so long ago, and, and there have been more to follow. Recently, a few schools in California were exposed for various scandals. Um, while I was on my boarding school's campus, I was, I was under the age of majority. I was, I was 14 years old, and the person on my boarding school's campus, the boy who assaulted me multiple times, was 17 when I first met him. And, um, that continued on for almost two years after the fact. It was both dating violence and sexual assault. Um, that, that's really important. And may I just ask about that one more thing? Because so often, again, we're still trying to be, you know, agents of change. And I fear very much, Lily, that a lot of boarding schools don't recognize the incidence and prevalence of what you're describing. I myself, going from school to school, have heard the same stories. And I push them up the ranks, but they're often on deaf ears. And I think your voice is really important tonight to talk with our listeners who need to hear accountability for what you went through. So I I kind of want a little bit more. Did you tell anyone? Of course. Yeah. Um, so when I was the first time I was assaulted, I didn't really realize that what had happened to me was sexual assault. I was orally raped um, one night in it must have been March or so. And there had been moments before that. This was 2014. There were moments before that where this young man had pressured me into doing things that I was not comfortable with. But I had never been with someone in that way. I'd only ever been kissed at summer camp by a boy. And so I was incredibly young and very susceptible to being manipulated. And I'd never been called beautiful by a, a boy who is in my you know, age range. And so when that person has this almost power over you of not only are they older and more established on this boarding school campus, but also they're telling you things that you've never been told before, you are so malleable to whatever they might ask of you, whether or not you're comfortable with it, whether or not you say no. And, and when I did say no to things, there were always consequences to that. And so I was very quickly conditioned into not saying anything until this night in, in March, where he took me up to a very secluded area on my boarding school campus and forced me to perform oral sex on him, which I had never done before. Um, 
I was incredibly distraught. I was emotional the entire time. Um, I remember saying to him, you know, I can't, I can't breathe. And him, him telling me that it's supposed to be like that. So associating that with pain and, and, and fear is, it's such a powerful emotion. May, may I just ask one more thing? I would, I don't know what school to which you're, ret- you're referring. I was just speaking before COVID at a boarding school and the ninth grade girls said, I want your opinion on this. I had the opportunity to talk with them after my speech. And this is what they said, Lily. They said, the boys text us, the seniors, the, the coolest, popular, richest, sexiest boys, the seniors. They'll text us with, will you meet me at the lake? That was the code name for oral sex. The, the thing you just said, we just service me. And, and when I said to the girls in ninth grade, I said, did you, why, why did you go? And it was kind of the equivalent of what you just said. They, they, the boys said, you're pretty, you're cool. It was so orchestrated like a puppet. And you know what they said next? If I declined go servicing oral sex at the lake at this prestigious, like top 10 boarding school, if I declined as a ninth grade girl, I knew he had a list. The next ask, he just wanted to be serviced. And I said, then you need to start paying. Like you need to charge a service. Like, why aren't you getting paid for this? I literally said that to the ninth graders. I'm so rogue. I've never had a job, Lily. Sorry. But your voice is so important and how you felt. And I've tried my best to call them out. And I said, why didn't you make these boys pay for what they were getting from you? And you were, you just gave me a throat moment. Like, I'm not sure how Sandra's feeling and I would turn it over to her next, but I want to throw up because I would gag on that experience, Lily. I would gag, but I, I've heard it from so many. Sandra, what do you think? Well, I was just going to say to, to the point that you're making, Katie, and, um, Lily, you said, you said it kind of quickly. Um, and I, I would like if you, don't mind um, if you could go into a little bit more detail. You you indicated that um, if you ever said no, there would be some type of punishment. Could you explain what the punishment felt like or, or what the punishment was? Um, because I think for a lot of our listeners, particularly parents, they don't understand how a student can feel or how their young person can feel pressured to do these kinds of things. Of course. So I think there's definitely two points there. Um, The first one is that on a boarding school campus, the sexual narrative of young women is controlled by the men. It is incredibly heteronormative society. It's It's actually a microcosm of anything that we really experience. It's very white, very affluent, um, highly educated, and, and there's so much wealth. And when there are a lot of young men that have never been told no, um, that might have, you know, generational trauma as my assailant did, um, from abuse at the hand of his father. They are so used to and very entitled to getting what they want. Um, and so no matter if you're saying no, if, even if you say no, they can go say that you did it anyways, which, which was something that did happen to me. And there is a huge bandwagon effect to that. But to that second extent, um, I was subject to physical abuse. 
by this person who I believed that I was in a relationship with, albeit it was a secret relationship. So the things he would say to me were along the lines of, oh, well, you don't tell anyone because they're going to ruin it for us and they won't understand and they're going to um, gossip about you. And obviously I was so young and I didn't want a bad reputation. So I never said anything. But at the same time, he was using that silence to manipulate the sexual rep- reputation that I then acquired because of what he had said. I had no clue that when I would send him intimate photos of me, which is child pornography, he was distributing that to his friends, his um, teammates on the hockey team and the lacrosse team. And they were all in possession of, of photos of my naked child body. And anything that I said to him, he would tell his friends I had said to him. Um, and when I said no the first time, I remember it was one of the first times him and I had hung out alone. And I told him that I wasn't comfortable with him, you know, putting his fingers inside of me. And I, I did say no. I, I said, oh, I've never done that. I'm not comfortable with that. And I remember him placing his hands over my wrists and basically prying them away from his arms that he was trying to use to touch me and looking me in the eyes until he saw that I had enough fear that I would finally submit. And I had never been manhandled like that before. Obviously, I had really had no sexual experiences prior to this young man. But when you are so young and somebody who is much larger than you, I'm, I'm an incredibly petite person and, and he is not. And he took my wrists and he looked me in the eyes and I knew honestly deep down that if I put up a fight, he would hurt me further than he already had. And, and so I stopped saying no and I stopped asking questions and I stopped saying that doesn't feel good because I knew that no matter what I said, it didn't matter because he was going to get what he wanted. And, and I, when I, he took me up to that field in that March after I had turned 15 and basically told me he was going to teach me how to give a blow job, which was the way that he had phrased it. Um, I, I did say no. That was that was one time that I finally said, I don't want to do this. And I said, I'm not comfortable with that. And I turned to walk away and he took me by the hair and pushed me onto the ground and forced me to perform oral sex on him. And I, I had no say because not only could I not use my mouth, but I also couldn't move. I was paralyzed in fear and I was being physically restrained by somebody who was almost double my size and was older than me and had much more of a substantial social standing on my boarding school's campus. I think that's really uh, important. Uh, and I appreciate you sharing that because whether it's a boarding school or even on a college campus where the community is small, it everything seems magnified. Everything seems important. So the idea that that people will know or people will say something can be just enough, let alone the actual physical um, torment or physical threat of, of a person not caring about your personal space. So I really do appreciate you um, clarifying what, what that means. Also for our, our younger listeners who may not realize that they're being bullied or um, coerced into doing things that they don't really want to do. So thank you. Of course, I you know I think it's so important to remember when I when I look back and in retrospect, I, I think back on these moments often when I am 
talking about my own experience and, and providing my testimony to people. And I think it is so misguided to say it's no means no or yes means yes, because yes isn't always voluntary. And and sometimes you don't even have the opportunity to say no. And so it really is. It comes down to have somebody asked you to do this to them. Is this something that you in, are enjoying? Is this something that you're taking pleasure in? Is this something that you want to be doing? And if the answer to that is not a, a free will answer of yes, then it is not consensual. It, it's inherently not consensual because consent is freely given. It's informed. You know what you're getting into. You're excited about what you're going to do. And if you're not feeling that way, if you're not feeling excited, if you're not feeling comfortable, if you're not feeling like you have enough information to make a decision about your body and what your body's doing, it, the answer to that question is that you're not able to consent. And, and I didn't even understand that that was what consent was. I thought that, you know, he said, this is what everyone does. And, and so in my mind, I said, even if I don't want to do it, everyone's doing it. So that means that I must have to do it too. And, and that, and I, it blows my mind. You're saying no in all the words and ways you can. And there's a power structure you're living and breathing within. And when someone says, do this, you are saying yes in there. Let's shift it, Lily. How do we sit? Like, if we're going to change the behavior, like, think about this. We're going to change. They admit, you know, it was their fault, 100%. But they couldn't even hear you. You were saying no, up, which way, and down, right, Lily? But, and you were also being manipulated. What would you say to the senior who did this to you? What, what did he miss? What was he doing? How could we change him? It's interesting because he wasn't even a senior. He was only one at boarding school. You know, it's, it, it's, it's very interesting. It's hard to explain this to some people, but at boarding school, a lot of people end up repeating their freshman year. Uh, this is for various recruiting purposes. So you end up with people who are sophomores who are 17 years old and incoming freshman girls who are 14. And, and, and so there's, there's already the power inequity of an age gap. When you enter into these, um, relationships, whether or not you view them as consensual, I was, I was a child. I mean, I, the, I went to a boarding school in New York. I was well below the age of consent in the state. So no matter what I was doing, it wasn't consensual. I had never had sex. I had never done any of these things. I, my, I live in an incredibly sex positive family and I, I'm very grateful for that, but no amount of talks from my mom or my dad could ever prepare me for the moment where I'm, I'm sitting there and having to make that choice for myself. And I think the key word there is, is choice. And, and I never felt like I had the choice because no one had ever really explained that it was a choice. And I, I think that that is, I think when I, when I sit in my mind and I try and put myself back in that little girl's shoes, I was trying to survive. In, in an environment that was so foreign to me and that I was so unprepared for as, as a child. I mean, I had just gotten out of the eighth grade of middle school where the only thing that people were worried about were at that point silly bands and, you know, what was going on on in G chat on Gmail. And suddenly I'm transported 
to a boarding school where people are not only having sex, but, you know, doing cocaine and sneaking out and drinking things that I had never done before. And, and you're surrounded by these people that are arguably far more adult than you are. And so when somebody says to you, this is, you know, this is what people my age are doing. And so you should be doing it too. And your peers are doing it who grew up in different social circles and you are doing it. You almost feel obliged to participate in that behavior as well. And, and not to say that if I was in, if I was transported back in time and was there again, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't have just walked away. Um, because I think that's a lot easier said than done. I think it's a lot easier said than done to say, if I could do it differently, I would have just ran away. I would have walked away. I would have shoved him off of me and never seen him again. But, you know, I, I, I hate the fact about myself that when I think about the first person I loved or what I thought was what love was, was this person that caused me such great pain and, and agony and subsequent trauma. Um, so I, you know, I, I feel like if I had to speak to somebody who's that age now and might be in a similar situation, the only thing I could say was it would be, you know, stand your ground, but also protect yourself. And it's so hard to walk away in those situations. I hear you're hurt. And there's, and I kind of think if you could go there, Lily, it happens all the time and no boarding school you know, if you want to go rocks, rock star yourself to Wall Street Journal and New, New York Times, this is the case. Like your experience is the case of the privileged. And how, how did they enable, they meaning the admin, enable this to happen? I think that to some extent it's, it's complicated because I wish that there had been more positive role models that demonstrated proper behavior, proper conduct. And, and I think that one reason why I, I do the advocacy work that I, that I do now is to be that person that hopefully some other young girl on a boarding school campus can see me and say, you know, I'm not alone. And hopefully we'll, will stand up for herself. We'll stand up for her friends. We'll help break this cycle of silence, which is the most isolating part of it. And, you know, it took many years before I was able to disclose to my parents what had happened to me. And I eventually, uh, the old headmaster who was at the boarding school when I was there ended up leaving and someone who is a very close mentor of mine ended up taking over. And over the summer, I actually sent him an email and said, I'd love to chat with you. And, and I, I disclosed to him and we had an incredibly emotional moment where the two of us were crying on this Zoom call. Um, and and it was very touching to me to see him say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. And what can I do to make this school a better place? And And to really want, I think that we need more people that want to change the dialogue, that want to remove this narrative that is so damaging and traumatizing to other young women like myself. Well, I, w I would like to um, ask a, a different version of, of a similar question. So I saw on a lot of college campuses a, a very similar narrative, whereas a fresh, the freshman girls would come in and instead of it being, you know, the senior guys or the, the elderly sophomore guys, 
uh, it was the fraternity guys, right? Um, and they would groom each other. The men would. They would have these conversations. They would pass down this. These are the tricks of the trade. And this is what you say to the girl to get her to agree to this. Or this is, you know, invite her to this party and we'll create the environment and we'll have alcohol. And so it's very much, it's not that the institution or the administrators are supporting um, the behavior you know, they may not even know about it, right? Because the, the very tight knit circle, now they know it's happening, but they may not have like that, the in-depth access of, of when it's happening or where it's happening. What I found though, was that the women did not have a network like that at all. There was no network of girls really helping each other. Even in the sorority houses, they may say, don't go to XYZ house. But in terms of this is how you stay safe and this is how you make sure you don't um, uh, talk to to or get pulled into this incident. So thinking back on your experience, can you reflect on any opportunity from maybe the freshman girls or senior girls to talk to freshman girls or some way of kind of like from the ground up creating the same kind of support system that the boys seem to have? but for the girls to keep the girls safe as opposed to trying to grab as many conquests as possible? I think, yeah, I I really like this question for a few reasons. Um, First and foremost, because I think peer forms of accountability are so powerful and I find them to be almost more powerful than institutional outlets for accountability because uh, people do talk and the one thing that I've noticed as a college student as and as a college student that does a lot of victims advocacy work is that there are really powerful ways, especially with the Internet and social media, for other women to warn um, each other about either serial predators in the community or institutions that are not um, supportive or protective of the women around them. And I think fraternities are a great example of that. I also think sports teams are another thing. And I, I think that there is a lot of the fraternal culture of these groups, whether it be a, a sports team on a college campus or a fraternity, breeds this kinship that is inherently self-protective. And so these young men go through, I, I mean, we all know about the hazing process. They go through this almost induction into um, a group where you earn your spot, you all are bonded through this trauma. And it, it is incredibly masculine and testosterone filled and, and toxic. And a lot of people that join fraternities, um, if you look at breakdowns, are affluent and, and, and white, especially if you're talking about um, not historically black fraternities and sororities. And so when you think about it, it, it really is kind of this, it, it is an, a continuation of the old boys club. Considering your experiences both at your boarding school and also um, in your college experience, what type of advice would you want to give to um, other students, male, female, whatever, but other students who find themselves feeling isolated when statistically speaking, it's probably more likely that more people around them have had their exact same experience? I think that's a really um, powerful question. And, and honestly, I can only speak for what I would want to happen for myself. But no matter how isolated you feel, 
it is so important and necessary to understand that there are other people in your community that feel the same way that you do. And, and there is so much strength in numbers. And the only way that we can move forward and to make a better culture, to create a better culture, which takes so much time and effort and is something that is constantly evolving is to recognize that although you might feel isolated, you are not alone. And no matter how alone you feel, there is somebody else out there. There are multiple people out there that share your story, maybe not the exact details, because the who, what, when, where, and how don't matter. The thing that matters is that they have been traumatized. They have, they are victims as well, and they feel alone. And the only way to create this community out of such isolation and alienation is to use our voices as victims, as advocates, as members of our community, as people that want to leave this place a better place than we found it, is to speak up and to say, this isn't okay, this needs to stop, me too. And and the thing is, you don't even have to name your perpetrator. You don't have to report to your university. You don't have to do anything that you don't feel comfortable with. But understanding that there is solidarity in these numbers, understanding that there's a community of people out there, just like you, just like me, just like Katie, that have gone through this trauma, that are growing after this trauma, that are still processing, it makes you feel so much more whole. And when you start talking about your story, it is so hard to stop. And I think that understanding that once you break that initial silence, you feel so empowered. It, that is something that you will carry with you for the rest of your life, no matter who you are. I think we want to amplify your courage and your fortitude and your vision. And you've only given us on this podcast a start to that vision. And I want to carry that through to your next steps. But the final thing we have tonight is your healing journey. Like you, your triggers, your throw up, your like headaches, your I don't want to live. I hate this. Like all of our survivors sit in shame, blame, and really truly we sometimes have to suffer physically, mentally, and emotionally. And you've done that seemingly really well. Give us your three best tips. I think my first tip is screw toxic optimism. It is no, I, I mean, I will, I scream this from the rooftops to all of the people that I help. And that is, it is okay to not be okay. And it took me so long to understand that, to be comfortable with the fact that I wasn't okay. And I think that once I recognized that I felt like crap and that something horrible had happened to me and that I have PTSD and that anytime I think about even holding hands with a guy, I get panicked or I want to go on a date and I'm scared of what might happen. It's okay. It's okay to wake up in the morning and think, I'm so tired. I don't want to get out of bed. It's okay to be in the middle of a class and have to get up and walk out and have a panic attack because 
something minute, a smell, a sound, something you just thought of randomly has triggered you, it is okay to have those lows because those lows remind you of how much you have accomplished since what has happened to you. And those lows remind you that you're not still there and that there is so much left in your life to to go forth and to to tackle and to deal with and that we are constantly works in progress. It is okay to not be okay. It's okay to cry. It's okay to scream. It's okay to be pissed off because something horrible happened to you because it's normal to be angry. You're a victim. You don't have to be a survivor all the time. And just because you survive something doesn't take away from the fact that a crime was committed against your body. Something was taken from you and it, it you don't have to be okay. And anyone that says, oh, you know, you're doing your, there's so much to live for. There's so many good things going on. Yes, that is so true. But when you have so much on your shoulders, when you have gone through so much, sometimes you just need a moment to feel like crap. And, and I really, I believe that the only way that you can move forward is to have those low moments. And I think going to the second point of, what has helped me so much in my healing journey is understanding that it is okay to be scared and it is okay to ask questions to help kind of dissolve that fear. I think one thing that I was so scared to do for so long was to say no, because when I said no in the past to a boy that really formed my sexual identity, I was harmed and, and so understanding that moving forward, it was okay to set boundaries. It was okay to let myself be loved again. It was okay to uh, let somebody else touch me and call me beautiful and that they weren't expecting something from me was so important, but I couldn't, I can't, I couldn't have gone there without asking really hard questions to people in my support system. So, and that can be anyone, your support system looks different. It, it is so individual. It is so unique. And whether that be a therapist, whether that be a best friend, a sister, a mom, a dad, a teacher, um, a, someone who's mentoring you, a colleague, asking questions from people that give you hope really does help not feel so scared anymore, but also help solidify the fact that it's okay that I'm scared because it's not always going to be like this. And I think my, my last big tip is don't feel guilty about not speaking up. I spent so much of my life being silent about what happened to me. And, and I still, this is something I'm still working towards is not feeling guilty because I know that I wasn't my assailant's last victim. And maybe if I had said something, I could have stopped him harming other women, but, but I am not responsible for my assailant's actions. And I am not responsible for what happened to me. And and I am growing. I am my own person. And that person can't take anything else from me. And, and that is powerful. Knowing that you are not guilty. They are the guilty party. They don't deserve to be humanized. You, They don't deserve to have their actions excused because no amount of bad crap that has happened in someone's life justifies what they did to you. So it is not a it is not a burden that you should bear. The burden is on them. And it is a lifelong journey, I think, for many victims of letting go of that guilt, of that shame, 
of this feeling of I, I could have done something more when instead I'm trying every day to ask myself what's next and, and how can I make this society a better place for other people like me? How can I inspire other women like me that might be younger to doing more, to, to not feeling alone, to moving past their trauma and to growing into the amazing people that they are capable of becoming? Um, because I'm not sorry for what happened to me. And I wouldn't be the person I am today if these horrible things hadn't happened to me. I don't know who I would be. I don't want to imagine who I would be um, because it's not worth it. It's not, you know, it's just not worth sitting there and thinking to myself, I could have done more. I feel so guilty that I didn't do more. I did the best I could. And all of us victims, we did the best that we could. And I think that that is the most powerful thing that I've taken with me throughout my whole journey. Um, Lily, that was beautiful. You said, I only have one more thing. You said so many good things. I'm going to push you to the max. And then Sandra, you do the same. I've not met many women in your place, Lily. You've had boarding school and Tulane. And I, I think you should say one thing you would have, you wish you would have said. Sometimes I wish that if I could look him in the eyes now, if I could look him in the eyes now, I would tell him, you're nothing to me and you are nothing in my life. Because at the end of the day, I, I, I mean, it makes me sound like I have a huge ego problem, but I am more successful than him. I am probably happier than him, despite the fact that I am not always that happy of a person and, and I don't feel the need to be. And and I have made more of my life because I have not harmed someone in the way that he has harmed so many people. And, and I am not letting him take, and I would love to tell him, I'm done letting you take from me because you took everything you could from me, but I still have so much more. Lily, beautiful. Sandra. I just, I don't have a question. I'm just going to thank you for your honesty and for speaking your truth and for um, naming um a very relevant aspect to um, the cycles of abuse as they relate to being connected to power and privilege, because um, a lot of times these stories get told and um, we paint the picture as if all victims are created equal and all perpetrators are created equal. But when you add in that power dynamic, um, it really does change. I just to add on to that, I think that one thing that I have noticed throughout my years of doing advocacy work is that it doesn't matter where you came from or who you are. We're all victims. And speaking from a place of privilege, I have the privilege that my support system could include comprehensive mental health assistance. And that I, I didn't grow up with generational trauma in the way that many women of color do when it comes down to sexual violence. And, and I grew up in a family that was a lot more open and accepting of dialogue around sex in a way that people who are, who grew up in very religious families or in communities where that is not accepted socially, um, experience. And I think at the end of the day, I, I am, I don't want to take the microphone away from so many women that go through their own experiences because all of our experiences are unique. And I think that is the one almost beautiful thing about victimhood is that it's a patchwork quilt. 
And no one square is the same as another one. And we all have different experiences. We all grow from the trauma differently. And I think from the place where I speak is from an inherent place of privilege, not only because I am a white woman, but also because I I did grow up in a family that had the ability to provide me with assistance after the fact. And I want, I want to use my voice to speak to other victims that might not have those opportunities and make sure that they know that you're not alone. Even if you feel alone in your community, just a couple steps away, you're not alone. And, and I stand by all survivors and, and, I think that all of us do. I think that that is our duty as survivors is to say, you know, you can't put a price tag on victimhood and, and say that, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you're believed and your story is valid. And I think that's something that Sandra, I think you've put that really eloquently um, throughout this is that I can only speak to my own story. And I think that that is the power of speech is that I can tell my story and it might be similar. It might be completely different from somebody else's, but our stories are somehow interconnected um, because we are a community. All of us, all victims are. Um, you know, Lily, thank you for that. Uh, I, I sit and listen and invite all of our listeners to sit all, all together right now. Like Lily painted a really powerful and vivid picture of what she went through. I think all of us connect, as Lily said, through our victimization. And whatever part of Lily's journey, victimization helps you, let's keep going. We're grateful to all of you who joined us for this episode of Dear Katie Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources and how to reach our legal support hotline. You also can help other survivors by subscribing to the podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your social media and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by an amazing group of volunteers. Thank you to them and thank you listeners for being present today. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving. Thanks so much, Sandra. And together we continue to thrive and survive and find our pathway to healing and continued support for survivors. Uh, Thank you. Tune in again and another week for Dear Katie. We're grateful to all of you who have joined us for this episode of Dear Katie's Survivor Stories. If you need support but don't know where to find it, please visit TakeBackTheNight.org for a list of resources. You can reach out to our legal support hotline, uh, connect with other survivors through our social media, and you can also help other survivors simply by subscribing to our podcast and sharing it far and wide. Please consider posting it on your own social media with some remark about what it's done to help you and make sure to follow us on ours. Dear Katie is completely produced by all of us, an amazing group of volunteers. We care so much about this cause. The paycheck isn't what we're doing for. Thank you to all of our volunteers. Thank you to our listeners. And thank you for our survivors, wherever you are, for being present and joining us in this process of growth, strength, and healing. Always remember, self-care is essential to healing and to thriving.